Well, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to the last gospel of the Bible, that is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this morning, the text of our sermon will be Revelation 2, Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. However, for the purpose of, of understanding the full writing, the full revelation of Christ to the church of Pergamon, we will read beginning in verse number one of chapter one. So please follow along with me as I read in the words of the Spirit in our Bibles here in Revelation 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servant the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning... I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. 
Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Verse 12, please. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who are holding to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Thus says the word of God. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, Jesus, Spirit, as you revealed truth to John, and the churches, and Pergamum, then please reveal truth to us this morning. You have placed us within the hearing of the word, and so now you're holding us responsible to hear what the Spirit says to the churches and to respond rightly. So, Father, help us. Help us respond. Humble us. That we might listen in our hearing. And do in our hearing all that the Spirit has commanded us to do. And we will be faithful to preach the word this morning, the word of Christ. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Well, the title of the message this morning is the sword of Christ, or you could say the the word of Christ. We just come to the church of Pergamum, and you see this in verse number 12. Uh, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, we had seen this figure uh, described, if you remember, back into chapter 1. And we had seen John describe this one who is standing before him. And he says he is one who has a voice that roars with many waters. And his eyes are like the flame of fire. And he is standing there clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest and his feet are burnished bronze refined in fire. We have this one who is standing here and we had alluded to the the image that is given here that Jesus is standing here as a priest and as a judge. 
He is pure and he is holy in the, the robes that he is wearing. And then his feet established on truth with this burnished bronze. He is able to stand in justice and enact justice. Now, I love this, and I think we as believers love this, that Jesus is able to enact justice. That is, he is able to accomplish justice. This is something that you and I and and all the forces, all the government and all the strong-armed leaders of the world are unable to really accomplish. And that is, they are unable to accomplish true, righteous justice. Now, we celebrate when, when righteousness is is enacted by justices, by, by law, by policy, even by judgment bars in, in, um, in the courtrooms. But we know this is only in part that righteousness is imparted, but Jesus Christ is, a, is able to impart righteousness. Now, he meets together with these, the leaders of these churches and through this message that he entrusts to John to, to deliver to them. And this third church that we're looking at this morning is a church called Pergamus. Now, Pergamus is about 100 miles north of the first church that he had addressed, that is Ephesus, and the second church of Smyrna, 60 miles, and this church is in a vile area. Pergamus was a place that was a center of worship for at least four gods. We're familiar with some of them, Uh, Zeus, uh, Dionysus, Athena, And then one that we become more familiar with in this passage called Asclepius. Asclepius would be the god of healing from which today we see a a serpent entwined staff in the place of medicine. In this city of Pergamos were two uh, iconic and really uh, prototypes for our world today. This city was famous for two institutions, two structures. Number one, it was famous for a hospital. This is the first real ancient um, working hospital that we know of that was established in Pergamos. So we'll talk, we'll unpack that a little bit. But it is, it is said that it is possible that even Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke and, and the book of Acts, that, that he himself was familiar with, maybe even received some training or maybe even practiced at some point in Pergamos at this hospital. It was, if you think of it, the John Hopkins or the, the, the Mayo Clinic of, of the time, it was that substantial. Um, it was real mingled, of course, we'll see with some, some wickedness, but, but there it stands. Now, there's another place where, where I jokingly say where you'd rather not be, especially today, is libraries. Pergamus was, was famous for its library. It actually had the largest known ancient library uh, of this time. Those are actually, by the way, two places that I try to avoid. Um, I try, I, I'm not a library person. I married a librarian, but I, I don't like libraries. It's, some, it's intimidating. It never just the mystery of the library has been unpacked. I have... I read lots. I would rather not go to the library to get my books, and so I beg, borrow, steal from other people to get books I, I want to read. But libraries and hospitals. Well, in this library, by the way, was, was believed to be 2,000 volumes uh, uh, stored there in this library. Now, you say, well, that might not seem like a lot. I want to remind you that they did not have the printing press. 
it would come about 1,500 years later. And so they have this papyrus, this parchment and papyrus, and every one of those volumes was, was handwritten volumes that was stored in this library. So here we have uh, really a place, um, a city that is fascinated, okay, with knowledge, okay, and the body. With knowledge, with a real headiness, with even a high order of thinking, a high order of philosophy, a high order of, of intellectualism, okay? And then a real fascination with the body. Now, I'd like to draw some comparisons uh, just uh, directly saying this reminds me of the culture that we're living in today. Very much a worship of the headiness, a worship of a higher knowledge. If you don't believe something, if you don't ascribe to something, if you don't affirm something, it's just because you need to have an open mind. It's just because you need to read some more. It's just because you need to learn some more. Let's educate you some more so that you can, you can believe the right things. And then secondly, in the area of the body, and specifically medicine, we see such a distortion in our culture, and the two almost seamlessly and, and really inseparably have found themselves in our culture today, especially in the sexual ethic, where we find knowledge and the body, right? We're being told today by our culture, you just don't know enough. You need to read more in order to understand what we're talking about, about this sexual revolution. These two, by the way, become, become intertwined, and it is fascinating, and I think it's, it's uh, directly a diagnosis from Jesus Christ when he says this church sits in the middle of this great city that is epitomized um, or characterized by its hospital and its library, okay? And he calls it, you sit, your church exists in the seat of the devil himself. You see, the hospital and the library had become the cultural icons. Knowledge and the body had become the cultural icons that now gave way to being what Jesus, with spiritual eyes, okay, says this is the headquarters for Satan. We don't spiritualize that at all. We just simply say it, there, there was something of a hot seat going on there in Pergamos where Jesus, with the ability to understand and perceive all things spiritual, was saying, this seems like the headquarters, this is the headquarters, excuse me, from which the devil is operating around the world. How fascinating is that and how easy it is to draw conclusions and understand what a culture must have been like with this. It was a capital city of the region and continued on for about 300 years following the writing of John. In fact, Pliny, the, the Roman writer, the Roman historian, said that, that Pergamus was by far the most famous city of Asia. The most famous city of Asia. Well, when Jesus comes to this church, we recognize that he comes with that 
powerful hand. He walks amidst them and he wants to give them comfort. I'm holding you. All around you is in such opposition to what you're preaching and what is your church. I'm holding you secure. I'm aware of your condition. I'm aware of your position. I'm with you. I walk in your midst. And this is a comforting promise from Christ. As he approaches them, he tells them more. He gives them a commendation. In verse number 13, he says, I know what you're up to. I know your works. I know the programs of your church. I know what's going on in your church. And he says, I know where you are. I know that you are hanging in there. I know that you're hanging in there. And it wasn't just that they were surviving. um, It's that they were thriving. And they were thriving amidst a pagan and a polytheistic emperor-worshipping culture. And Jesus, who knows the very motives and he knows the very heart of the church, he says, I know what you're up to and you're being faithful. And I'm commending you for this. I'm thankful for this. In fact, there was one among you, his name is Antipas. By the way, we don't know anything about Antipas. There is a little bit of a historical record that has some validity to it that that he was so hated for his witness for Jesus Christ that they had made a bronze bull, a bronze ox, there at the throne at the Pergamos, worshiping the false gods, and they inserted him within this hollow sculpture and heated up this bronze sculpture so that he would that he would roast to death for his witness for Christ. Now, I find it so powerful that, that he says, Jesus says this of Antipas. Notice in verse number 12 there, he says, he is my faithful witness. Now, this is, by the way, where we get the word martyr from. And Jesus has used this word already for himself. Notice back in verse number 6 in chapter 1, and from Jesus the faithful witness. Now, now Antipas has become identified to the point that he has laid down his life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is given the same description as our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, we tend to think of martyrs as those who have paid the ultimate price, have laid down their life, have been executed, have been persecuted, Their lives have been taken for their faithful witness. And that is the pattern of faithful men and women. But a martyr doesn't have to be someone who dies for the witness of Christ. What has qualified them to die for the witness of Christ is that they have lived out the witness for Christ. And so to the extent that you and I are preaching the faithful gospel of Christ we too have become faithful witnesses of Christ. And so not much is known besides that which has been assumed or passed on in this, but Antipas has shown himself a very faithful man amidst his church. And Jesus and God is, is raising a people in his church who will be a dividing line, who will have opportunity to speak the word of Christ, the witness of Christ in such a way that it's dynamic, it's powerful, and it's dividing amidst their peer group. It's dividing amidst their family in such a way that it does often become offensive to those who hear. 
But notice also that Jesus says, I have placed you in this very difficult situation and you're not able to remove yourself from it. Uh, there's often times when we as, as witnesses of Christ would like to say, Lord, would you just take our church and would you just move it into a more Christian setting? Would you, would you put the church of Christ where it's, where it's easier to minister? Would you just put us in a place where, where the message of the gospel is more readily believed upon? Folks, God has established his church, and he does this in innumerable ways around the globe. He puts his church, he places it right in the middle of difficult situations and causes that church to not be removed from it because that is where Jesus Christ must be made known. And here in Westerville, our hearts must become convinced that God has called us in our community who does not love Jesus Christ to hear about Jesus Christ. God has called us to this. And we're in a very, uh, we're in a very, uh, a place where, where people don't want to hear Jesus. And those are the people that need to hear about Jesus. This is what Jesus has called us to. We're not able to remove ourselves from this, from this place. God needs believers to live Christ out in difficult places today. If you're in a workplace that is adverse to Christ, if you're in a workplace that's adverse to the, the word of, of, the, of God, know this, that God has placed you in this very difficult place, and you're unable to remove yourself from it for the very reason that the most important thing that happens there is that Christ be made known. The Lord is able to sympathize with us. The Lord Jesus himself is able to sympathize with us as he himself who stood trial and no man stood by his side as he gave defense of who he was and what he had come to do to rescue and deliver us from sins. He knows what it's like to be in the midst of people who do not want to hear that they need a savior. And he says, you dwell. It's a permanent place of residence. You dwell where Satan's throne is. Is a place designated to have special authority and power. Now, the temple of Asclepius was, was this, this place where this snake was, was intertwined on this rod. And let me explain this temple a little bit more to Asclepius. We see this sign, um, if you could go back to the slide or go to the slide with the ambulance on it. But we see on the ambulance, we see this all the time. It looks very familiar to us. That's the symbol that you'll see on basically almost every ambulance there. It comes from that first hospital. It's kind of a nod to the first study and science of medicine. But even there, we see this pagan symbol here in our culture. Doubtless, many don't know what that means, but Asclepius was this god. If you were someone who had an ailment, a sickness, you would come to this, this hospital, and this hospital was full of 
the worst animal in the world, snakes. I sympathize with Harrison Ford in some of his movies. I hate snakes. Well, this is probably one good reason why we would hate them. But so these snakes filled this hospital, of all things. And as you would come to this hospital, you would bring an offering to the priests, the false priests, a monetary offering, something worth value. And interestingly enough, the greater the offering, the greater cost you would bring, the greater check, if you will, the greater credit card you would bring to this temple, the more likely you were to get some attention. But what you would do is, at nighttime, they would lay you down in this room, and it sends shivers up my spine, where snakes would be all around you on the floor. And the snakes, if the God was pleased with you, if the snakes slithered over you, and perchance even licked you, Let's move past this part of the sermon real fast. You would be healed. This is Asclepius. Now that we can move past that, this is, does this not speak of the great serpent himself? who then is being emulated, is is being exalted there in the throne uh, city of his headquarters, there the very snake himself in the temple. Oh my, how foolish and unbelieving hearts can be when they stray and they will not hear the word of Christ. So Antipas was faithful amidst this type of culture that had such great superstition. But now in chapter 2, verse number 16, Jesus says something here. I'm sorry, in verse number 14, I have a few things against you. There are some of you, there are some in your church who are holding to the teaching of Balaam. Now to remind them, Jesus says, this is the one who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the the sons of Israel. Now, back in Numbers 22 is the story, but, but there was a king who is seeking to destroy God's people. And so he hired this prophet, this preacher, this prophet, this witch doctor, really, who he, he believed that if, if this witch doctor could, could pronounce a curse upon Israel, that then they would be accursed and, and he could defeat Israel and overcome them. So when this witch doctor spoke, God actually changed his words of cursing and blaspheming for Jehovah and his people into blessing. And so when he spoke, he would say, blessed are the people of Jehovah. Instead of cursing, came the blessing. And he tried it again. And he tried it again three times. This wicked, evil prophet sought to curse with the power of the devil God's people, and instead came out the exact opposite. It was the blessing of God's people. And so he came back to the king and he said, if they will not be cursed by tongue, then they will be seduced. And so let us take the daughters of Moab, that wicked nation, 
and introduce them to the young men of Israel. And let them be seduced by pagan, idol-worshipping women. And so it was that the men of Israel gave of themselves to the women of Moab and began to not only have have, uh, marriage with them, but also began to worship those gods that had become introduced to them in their own bedroom. So what has happened in this, in this church? Oh, they're preaching Jesus saves. But they're preaching sexual immorality. I would like to liken this. And there's much to go on on this in another time. To having a rainbow flag next to a cross. Jennifer and I spent some time in New England this summer as we, as we normally do. And in every little town, every little town that we would pass through in New Hampshire and Vermont, the place where you would see the rainbow flag apart from the city hall, the town hall, would be in front of the beautiful white steepled churches. In every town. The cross and the flag. This is the teaching of Balaam. This synchronization is something that draws Jesus' attention to this church. And to this church, Jesus says, I am coming to you with what? With a sword. This is it right here in this passage. Now, the second thing that they had given themselves to is the teachings of the Nicolaitans. But what Jesus implies here, it seems like he says here, is the teaching was very similar. It's either one sexual ethic or another, but both of them were deviant. Both of them were devious and both of them were wicked in my sight. And it's being put up with and not only put up with, it's being celebrated in the church of Christ. Now, there are some of you like Antipas who you know nothing of this type of behavior. It's not found in your home, and you will profess Christ till you die. But there are some of you who are saying, I believe in Jesus Christ, but I'm also going to worship my body. And Jesus says, I have this against you. I am coming to you with a two-edged sword, with a two-edged sword. If the ancient world feared the power of the Roman sword, then Jesus comes to this church and he says, I hold a more powerful sword. In Revelation 19.15, the Bible later on would describe in this very book that the, the sword of Jesus Christ would be so powerful it can slay the, uh, slay the armies of the Antichrist. Revelation 19.15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Listen, this sword is described as having two edges. So what is, what is different about having two edges? Our family has a sword at home that's been passed down since the Civil War. It has one edge. What is the difference with a two-edged sword? Here's the point. 
There's no dull edge to this sword of Jesus. Whichever way he swings it and whichever use he has for it, there is no dull edge. The first part, the first edge we could recognize here is that there is a judgment of the wicked. That is, those who clearly have never professed Jesus Christ as Savior. They are decimated, they are destroyed by the, by the certain edge of the sword. But it seems that there is another edge of the sword that Jesus has reserved for a special use, and that use is for his own beloved. You say Jesus would dare to take the sword against his own church? That is exactly what Jesus is saying. This is a judgment of discipline. The fact is that the church is not exempt from God's mandate to place him first and central in their midst. We are called by Jesus Christ to put him first before we put ourselves, to put Jesus Christ first before we put others, to put Jesus Christ first before we put our own safety, to put Jesus Christ first before our own comfort and convenience to put Jesus Christ first before success and to put Jesus Christ first before popularity. Jesus is serious, listen, Jesus is serious about his superiority and he calls his people to that same seriousness. Are you serious about the superiority, about the supremacy, about the centrality of Jesus Christ in your life? Is Jesus Christ before yourself? Is Jesus Christ before others? Is Jesus Christ before convenience and comfort and success? Jesus Christ is deadly serious about his centrality in the lives of those who say they are following after him. The word of God, this, remember, this sword... According to verse 12, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And the word of God is the very sword that he uses. Or could we say the sword of Christ is the word of Christ. Now we know a verse in the scriptures that tells us that exact description of the word of God as it applies to believers, really to everyone, but specifically to believers in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is alive and powerful, or it is lively and it is filled with power. And it is sharper than any, how many edges? Two-edged sword. There's no dull edge to the word of God. And it pierces as far into the dividing of your soul and your spirit. The place where hardly even you know about. It goes to the very bottom of who you are. The very innermost part of how you're made and who you are and how you think. God even knows us, our inward being, better than we know ourselves. Praise be to him that he does, because I'm a dark, dark mystery at times. And he goes and he is able to go into 
deeper than the heart surgeon for Steve Blackwell. To the, the division of the soul and the spirit and into to the joints and marrow, the very center part of your being. And because of this, he is able to discern, he is able to know, he is able to judge your thoughts and your intentions, the intentions and thoughts of your heart. And what does he do with that for the believer? Well, because his word is lively, it's able to bring life. Like the scalpel used in the learned physician's hands is able to bring healing to the brokenness of your body, so too the sword of Jesus Christ is the scalpel for the human heart. And he uses it with omnipotent precision. Jesus says to this church, I am coming, and I want to do a work in your heart. I want to bring healing where there's deadness, Because often there's deception in knowledge and in body, in knowledge and in feeling. There's a lot of deception. There's a lot of deceit. You might feel well, but you have a disease. You might think you're well, but you're wicked. God's word is able to do the healing work in your heart when you hear the word of God. So he says he will come to them. And to those who will repent, he tells them, repent, turn away, turn back towards me. To those who will repent, he is going to give them a hidden manna. And probably some of you have sat here just waiting for me to tell you what this hidden manna is. I can give you some ideas, but it appears that Jesus is using some, some language here for us to just recognize a couple things about. First of all, he says hidden manna. It seems that there's a special blessing that Jesus is reserving for his people that is unknown to those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. And it is a blessing that gives them life. Manna given to the people in the wilderness, God's people in the wilderness, brought life where there was no supply. And if you're without Jesus Christ today in the hearing of this word, you don't really, truly know what it is to live. And Jesus Christ has a very special blessing reserved for those who simply place their faith in his saving power. And it is a lively blessing, a fullness of blessing. And so we don't know what this hidden manna is. We believe it seems to be hidden now, but maybe it will be revealed in time to come. But it is a hidden manna perhaps also because it is spiritually experienced. And if you're without Jesus Christ, you can't possibly experience the supply, the life that Jesus Christ has. It's hidden from those who do not know what manna is like from heaven. The second thing here that Jesus is, gives to him a, a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except to the one who receives it, this white stone. Well, a white stone given to someone was a Roman custom. It would be a stone that was used, for example, to approve or to dis- disapprove of 
of making a vote together. Some have even suggested that it was part of given to victors in athletic contests. And, and when, that, when that victor would, would stand on the, the podium then to receive the applause of the people, he would be given a stone with his name on it, a white stone that would serve sort of, we think of it as a trophy, but it served as a dual purpose, not only of significant fame and recognition there and the applause of everybody, but then the stone was given as a ticket to the ensuing feast that would be uh, prepared for the winners, for the champions. There would be this great feast and celebration then, and this white stone would be, if you will, a ticket to the seat at the table, the celebration feast. This is your pass to the post-event celebration. Here Jesus says, I'm going to put a name on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. I don't know how to interpret that for you except to say that it appears to be at least an approval of Jesus Christ and then a very special recognition that Jesus places upon the one who says, Jesus, you really are enough. I will live for you all the way to the end of my life. And there's that special Recognition known between you and Jesus. And if, if it would be likened then to the cultural aspect it is, then, if you will, a, a card at the table at the feast of Jesus. This is your seat. It's reserved for you. Come and celebrate with me. A new name. The fact is that Jesus actually had talked about a name in prior teaching in John 10 when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and, and I lay down my life for the sheep. In John 10, 3, Jesus says this. To him who enters only by the door and not by climbing in some other way, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Believer, there is a point here that that it is worth sitting on just for another minute. Jesus knows you by name. You're not just lost in the crowd. We read of multitudes and myriads. We read those words in the scriptures and we recognize there's going to be a day when we're, we're almost in a faceless crowd because there's just going to be so many people before the throne of Jesus Christ. But do you, do you know that Jesus is able to make eye contact with you in the crowd and receive your worship as a wonderful moment and a transaction that's taking place, an exchange that's taking place? Yes, there's a multitude, but there's a name on every face. So how do we draw this all together this morning? Well, first of all, we recognize again that the power of the word of God is meant to do two things in the life of the follower of Jesus Christ. Listen, the word of God is meant to do two things. Let me me say this. The word of God can't do anything in your life if it isn't present. 
saturate your life with the word of God. Take the word of God in in multiple ways. But hear and read the word of God. And the word of God will do two things in the believer's life. Number one, it will cut away the dead things of sin in your life and create a defense for the evil. That's first. It will cut away the dead and create a defense for you. You say, I don't know how to shed the stuff that I keep doing. I don't know how to, how to cut off the flesh. I don't know how to stop acting upon the desires that I have. I don't know how to control my tongue. I don't know how to control my thoughts. I don't know how to control my body. I don't know how to defeat sin. Well, the word of God is a two-edged sword. It's able to divide sin and sinfulness from your new flesh, from the new heart that's been put inside of you when you put faith in Jesus Christ. Then secondly, it will not only cut away the dead things and bring life, but it will lead you into the paths of life. It will show you how to live following Jesus Christ. That's what the word of God is for. It's meant to show us the paths of life Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I believe that it is not worldliness that is the greatest threat to the church of Christ. It is not worldliness that is the greatest threat to a gospel-preaching church. Let me say even specifically, I believe it is not worldliness that is perhaps the greatest threat to Providence Church. But it is wordlessness. Wordlessness. When the church will not give ear to what the Spirit says, when the church will not attend to the hearing of the word, when the church will not gather to hear the word preached, the Spirit preaching the word and applying the heart to to the heart, when, when the church will not accept the word when it is delivered to their hearts by the Spirit, when the church will not apply the word to its own personal lives, when the church will not approve God's promises, it will not approve God's prophecies, it will not approve or affirm the proclamation and purposes, then the church of Jesus Christ stands in opposition to Jesus himself and thusly stands to be punished severely by Jesus Christ. If we're convinced that the word of God will do the work of God, then we will give ourselves happily. But we will also give ourselves in a disciplined way, saying, I don't feel like this, but I need to hear the word of God. I need to read the word of God. I need the word of God. Don't let, don't let the evil one deceive you. If you don't feel like reading the word of God, open it up and begin reading and say to God, I don't feel like reading your word. 
You don't feel like going to church. You go and you say, Lord, I'm not in the right place in my heart, but I want to put myself under the hearing and and you're just going to have to do some work in my heart because ultimately I need you to change me anyways. But the word of God will do the work of God in the heart of his people because it's the two-edged sword for the mouth of Jesus Christ. Are you a wordless person? Or are you a worldly person? Wordlessness will always lead to worldliness. Let us pray.